Hello and welcome to this week's episode of About Abortion. I am thrilled to be joined by a special guest today. Um, now, there was debate when I last saw you, brother, about the pronunciation <laughs> of your first name, Aaron or Aaron. I don't want to get it wrong. So you better tell me. Yeah, hey, Aaron. Aaron, that's it, yeah. Aaron, Aaron. The, the, ex- Aaron, the extra the A is... It? Yeah, the Aaron, Americans get, uh, get off the hook because they just say Aaron anyway, so I'm fine. fine. But British people, I will take you to task. <laughs> You've got to give me the, the indulgence of the luxurious extra A, because technically I know that Aaron is really should be just one A, but I like the extra A, even if it causes okay, these, it's an American, these precise it's issues. A, another sign of uh, how American culture is infiltrated. Indeed. Um, through the television, yeah. no doubt. Well, so we last saw each other, I think, at the Mission of God conference, which was which was great. Um, tell us, mm. uh, for those who, who haven't come across you before, tell us what, what are you kind of um what are you up to at the moment what are your particular uh concerns as a theologian mm. uh t- mm. tell us a bit about what's what's on your heart and mind at the moment and what you're up to yeah sure yeah so i'm i'm you know academic theologian and a preacher and a writer so I, those sort of things all combine in different ways I'd, I'd also consider myself something of an evangelist as well um and i was teaching for uh best part of seven years at a bible college um focused on mission and evangelism especially my PhD was in systematic theology um, with a kind of emphasis on preaching and, and the doctrine of scripture. And so I've had these emphases and seeing the church move left in loads of ways over the over the last decade or so. And, it's, and, I, and I say the church move left, I mean the evangelical church, especially, of course, mm-hmm. you could argue the church at large is moving left with Western society um, in a more liberal, progressive direction away from the foundations and scripture. So I've been speaking about that in all sorts of different ways for, you know, a decade. And I think seeing um, in, in recent years, I had a kind of call within the last three years to speak out more publicly on social media, in blogs, podcasts, this kind of thing. So, yeah, I started a podcast in 2021, started a blog, started uh, a joint Twitter and then a couple of years into joining Twitter, I got fired for joining, for being on Twitter. There's a whole story. There's many interviews about that whole thing. You can go and look it up. Uh, I am the fired lecturer, which often I, I get introduced at conferences. This is the guy who got fired. Okay, yeah. There are some other things. But but actually, even me being fired for what I said, speaking out against LGBT stuff, is part of the vision, really, for what I felt is needed. Not, not getting fired was not part of the plan, but it, it's kind of just shows the, the moment we're in that even in an evangelical college, you can't speak some of these things. So for me, it, it highlights, it didn't really show me anything brand new. It's already what I knew was a problem. Evangelicalism is no longer willing to speak out about these kind of key issues that are coming into the church. And so that's really what my MO is right now, continuing to encourage that kind of um, shamelessly biblical speech, as I've been saying, um, to really own what, what God's word says and to live it out. And then to see a kind of cultural um angle to that which evangelicals have been a little bit reticent to focus on so that's for me what i'm doing um, writing and speaking at conferences where, you know, and preaching here and there and um and with some long-term aim of, of trying to encourage reformation in the church and reformation of theological education whatever that looks like and it might mean starting an institution I, it probably will in some level and we certainly will in some level but i don't quite know precisely what that will look like yeah i feel like there's still some reformational stuff that needs to happen first. So that's kind of in a in a nutshell where, where I'm at at the moment. Okay, cool. Thank you. So it's interesting what you said there, because um, one of the things I want to talk with you about today is uh, this relationship between the gospel and mm. the cultural stuff or the political stuff mm. or, or the hot button 
um, yeah. topics because I, I can imagine that some people would, would hear what you've just said and see that as an example of mission drift. They think, here's a guy who started mm. off with the gospel, he was into missions, yeah. into evangelism, and now mm. he just seems to have gone a bit off course into mm. politics and mm. uh, all this kind of stuff that's perhaps a distraction from the gospel, maybe mm. even puts people off the gospel. Um, so t talk to us a bit about that. Was that, mm. was that a deliberate um, migration of yours or kind of shift in emphasis? Um, is that something you set out to do? Is it something you're deliberately doing? And um, what's that all about? Is that is that mm. drift from the gospel or is it something yeah. that actually you, you, you consciously stand by? Mm. Yeah, no, really good question. That's, I think that's the question of our age, really. It's, um, <clears throat> it's, for for evangelicals to consider because for many years we've we've believed something about the gospel that isn't actually true, uh, which is that we've narrowed off, we've shorn, we've we've kind of defanged the gospel, we've we've made it a, a, merely a gospel of individual salvation, and not not the gospel of the kingdom. You know, the, often in the gospels it is referred to as the gospel of the kingdom. That's what the good news is. So. The sense of like the kingdom of God impacting the entire world, being salt and light in the world, that's something that I always heard about and never really understood how we apply that. I just kind of thought, well, the kingdom is what happens when people get saved and added into the church, which of course is, you know, it's still basically the, the main emphasis of our of of our mission. We want to we want to disciple the nations, Matthew uh, twenty eight, and we want we want to actually um, see people actually saved and discipled and obeying Christ's command in the, in the authority that he gives us to do that. But that means in that means changing the world. And now the problem is, in evangelicalism, we've historically associated that social aspect with liberals. So for many years, I'd be arguing, and I think I would still be valid in arguing against the worldliness of liberalism. Theological liberals became the ones with the social gospel. They're the ones who only cared about changing the world and making it a little bit better. And whereas we actually want full transformation in the gospel, so we're saying it's all about the gospel, which means I need you to be converted, added to the church. The church is God's plan A to change the world. Ephesians 3.10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is going to be made known to the rulers and authorities and principalities in heavenly places, etc. So the church is huge. But it became what, you know, what Joe, we, we have a mutual friend in Joe Boot has called the kind of gospel of churchianity, churchianity rather than Christianity. So let's just get people on an alpha course into the church and the world will just change. And actually it hasn't. It doesn't change just like that. And our even, even our, our evangelical heritage, let alone before the Reformation, we've seen Christians who had a very different uh, approach to things than just get people saved into the church and magically by osmosis keep repeating the gospel every single week and that will change the world. I mean, so look at it so for me, it being a teaching at a mission a mission training college albeit one that i think is now gone way beyond far far you know very liberal but evangelical in name only which is cliff college it, it had a great heritage of evangelism and so i'm there teaching running the masters in mission program i'm lecturing on all sorts of programs um running my own one there and i'm teaching on the history of mission and i had to do a kind of series of mission lectures on the history of mission and just when you really delve into this stuff you just notice how out of sync this very recent emphasis on a more pietistic approach to christianity is so though it's brilliant in loads of ways i, I don't disparage 
in, in every way, the pietistic emphasis. I think it's actually really important that we are individually saved and that we're not just interested in political agendas for the sake of it. They're absolutely, those pietistic approaches in the history of Christianity, especially post-Reformation, have been influential and, and helpful. It's just that because they were cor correcting an emphasis on like the externality only, like I'm just going to go and get involved in this political cause and the world will change and they actually are not converted themselves. You just see that with liberals. They want to make the world a little bit better. And so the evangelicals associate social gospel with liberalism and then they just exit. When you look again, look at looking at history, I'm like, I can't, I can't see the, the growth of the church in history as anything else than us caring about the gospel worked out, the gospel of the kingdom worked out through, yes, individual transformation, ecclesial transformation, and then social, political transformation as well. It's just what happens when mission is successful. It's, it's like it's like so for evangelicals it's like we've been preaching a gospel doomed to fail because we're actually scared of what might happen if we if people actually con were converted and actually started living as salt and light in the world that's the kind of so i've seen that issue and, 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 the, and seeing that especially come to fruition negatively that that way of thinking in the light of you know, covid 2020 maybe brexit these kind of social issues which have started to impinge upon the church and we start to realize that all of these churches that are gospel-centered and they don't preach on abortion or trans or homosexuality because they don't want to distract from the gospel, they want to seem like Pharisees and moralists, they actually started becoming moralists for the left left political issues. They started talking about race. They started talking about um, the problem of toxic masculinity and this kind of thing. Now, by all means, call out sin wherever you see it. But it, I, it just became very dubious to me that um, our reticence to speak out on these issues was really us being pulled and pulled by the culture to the left and, and, and you know, Shawning the kind of um, the, the sharp edge of the uh, of, of the church's sort of public witness. So yeah, very deliberate change on my on my point, but it's been going on quite a few years, yeah. really. Thank you for yeah for explaining some of that. So when you say that this is actually a relatively recent phenomenon, this this truncated, um, unapplied gospel, if you could put it that way, mm. um, roughly how recent are we talking? So are there critical uh, periods of recent history where you could say that's where we started or that's where we stopped that's where we stopped applying that's when we reduced it we we mm. we kind of forgot about the breadth and depth of the kingdom and mm. it became very individualized and so on is it possible to kind of put some kind of figure on that and or any mm. any particular moments where where the church turned in that direction mm. i mean yeah i think i think you'd probably certainly we're looking 20th century and I think we're looking post Second World War. It's hard to put precise dates on it because these things, I think it's actually quite important to state that you can't put a date on it because these things, like C.S. Lewis said, some of the greatest evils or, or compromises happen very gradually and slowly. That's how they actually work. It's like the bad kind of yeast through the dough. You know, Jesus says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Um, and, I, and I think that can happen quite gradually. So I think, but it is certainly Second World War and First World War cataclysmic events, of course, and the church, like society, is trying to rebuild itself. The church is fighting liberalism. Evangelicals are fighting liberalism in the 20th century, which is an inheritance of the 19th century liberalism. So we're preoccupied with this. And I think because the social gospel has been taken over during that time, um, we are fighting for doctrinal issues. And therefore it becomes, and during the Cold War especially, it became an issue because you, you have a lot of Christians who are like, especially in America, the US, going, Right, communism's terrible. We need to stop people being communist. And the evangelicals started to realize that was getting overdone. You might have sermons where everything was about defying communism or 
or um, trying to make people more moral uh, moral agents. And so in the US, it's a huge thing. You mentioned earlier the way that even my name pronunciation is affected by the US uh, culture. It's the same with evangelicalism at large. You've got Southern Baptists, for example, who are keen to um, not just be moralistic. And so they, they see that in their own heritage. And, and often it actually is true. You can see in the history of American Christianity a genuine sense of moralism where it's like, can we just convert people to living right? Even though they're Protestants, they're actually living this kind of sense of like, don't do this, do this, don't do the bad thing, do the good thing. And they kind of did probably lose the gospel. So this recovery, probably, yeah, probably post-civil rights era as well. So we're talking not just post-Second World War, but post-1960s. Um, you, you do have a sort of change of wind and and it, it a recovery of the gospel. So I rejoiced in the, in the gospel-centered movement in its early days, um, especially as it challenged some of the flakiness of the, let's say, the emergent church movement, which was a, a sort of postmodern movement where, where, where people were saying, hey, let's get more involved in culture, which again meant a liberal form of it. Let's be kind of cool, cool evangelicals who everyone likes and do cultural engagement. But the cultural engagement usually meant something about the arts or whatever, um, something nice, never something usually on the, on the socio-political side. And so that gospel-centeredness was sort of like, hey, let's focus again on the gospel. Um, but it sort of lost its way. So I think I, I'd probably be looking in the last 50 years uh, as to where that came in specifically. Um, and you, you, I was even at a conference recently where, where they were talking about some of the Puritan inheritance, you know, the 16th century, uh, 17th century Puritans, uh, like John Owen, um, who have been hugely influential on on these significant evangelical preachers, like like John Piper or something. Now, now my my eldest son's middle name is Piper. I have no no shame in saying John Piper has been a huge influence in my life, really, really helpful to me as a young Christian, significant. And John Piper is really strongly a pietist on these issues. Like he does speak out against abortion, which I'm always glad about, those kind of things. But technically speaking, um, he doesn't really think we should be getting involved in anything more significant than let's proclaiming from the from the pulpit occasionally some of these things. So he's better than others, but I think he, officially speaking, is a pietist. Hugely influenced by John Owen, but not by John, John Owen's political theology. And it's many years ago that I heard um, him speaking on John Owen's life in a biography talk he did. And John Owen was there as the chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, preaching to troops as they're going into battle and things like that. And you're like, are evangelicals allowed to do that? This is John Owen who preaches these wonderful evangelical sermons. How are those? Is he just completely wrong about this wider? Is that just like a complete aberration? And yeah, and so I'm hearing increasingly hearing people who are bringing out this legacy of the Puritans, and it's not just their personal spiritual piety, which we love to talk about. It's actually that their social transformation, they had such an amazing view of the gospel, like evangelical gospel, most of what we understand of the gospel, a huge part of it comes from the Puritans, and, and as they understood the reformers. But it, it came with a societal transformation, which I think also influenced the missionaries of the uh, 19th century, who we still think of as heroes, even though they saw great gospel transformation in the culture as one of their key uh, key aims in, in bringing the gospel to different cultures. Yeah, and I'd like to come back to that in a, in a little bit, actually, yeah, yeah. one of those examples. Um, but before that, I think something you, you mentioned there, I think it's worth us um, dwelling on a bit, because I think what we've seen over the history of the whole church, in fact, you could say, but certainly the last century, is there are necessary reactions against genuine problems um, but those reactions can either go too far, the classic sort of pendulum swinging yeah, thing, yeah. which we're all sort of, you know, we're all kind of liable to do that. Mm. Or um, 
or simply history's moved on and that's no longer the issue that we need to be reacting against. Yeah. Yeah, we, we kind of got that down. Yeah. You know, I think, I think yeah. some of the yeah. evangelicals today, they're still living as if it's the 16th century and the great sort of yeah. enemy of our souls is, um, is yeah. Roman Catholicism and, yeah. uh, and, and, yeah. and so on. And, yeah, and we do need to defend soteriology, of course. Yeah. Soteriology mm. is, is so important. Mm. But I don't know about you, I, I, but uh, it's been a long time since I walked into a, an evangelical church in the UK and, and heard sort of legalism being preached from the pulpit. You know, mm. that's just not mm. our problem. You know, we, we're, just, no. we're not getting people trading salvation for, for monetary gain no. nowadays. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so times have moved on. Um, and, and even if the, the reaction was necessary at the time, which in many of these cases it was, it was necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, time's moved on and, and, and today we've got a different problem haven't we that needs addressing yeah, yeah. so yeah. before we go any further can you um, mm. tell me what do you think then is the problem today what, what is it in the evangelical churches today um, that is our equivalent if you will to well at mm. one point the big issue was the danger of the social gospel at another point mm. it was the danger of Roman Catholicism and, and legalism and whatever mm. else of course in the early centuries of the church it was arianism and it was pelagian yeah. or whatever yeah. what yeah. is it today yeah it's, it's a million dollar question i think i, I would i'd say two things especially cowardice would be my headline cowardice now arguably cowardice is is a problem for the church in every single age even in the age of um where where you know, athanasius is debating arianism for example and getting exiled uh for doing that and there'll be people who want to side with the in crowd. That is a human, just an anthropological problem, a problem of sin, homartiological problem, we'd probably call it in, in theology. Um, we, we always want to side with the cool kids, with the in crowd. And that might, it just like, it doesn't matter what that is. In every year, it could be an issue on the right. It could be an issue on the left. It could be you, need, you want to join the Nazis because that's where the power base is. It could be you want to join the woke crowd because that's now where, where the power base is. So humans in sin will always want to, look after themselves, look after their reputation with whatever the cool thing happens to be. And, they, and they'll be reticent to speak that out. So I don't want to say necessarily that we're more cowardly, but I, I notice a particular way in which we're cowardly today is, is that we do care about the, the, the it's, it's the fear of man, it's the fear of the loss of, of repute, um, in particular on these anthropological issues, on what is it, what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be a male? What does it mean to be female? What is marriage? These are not issues necessarily that that would have come into. They're not in the creed, for example. So lots of evangelicals have inherited this notion that you have closed-handed issues and open-handed issues, mm. and you fight about the closed-handed issues, which no one really fights about anyway. And, and we're very open on, on these open-handed issues. So even a few years ago, the Gospel Coalition uh, would have been over a decade ago. People were starting to critique them and saying, why do you insist that people have to be complementarian in their view on male, female, um, when you're the gospel coalition? It's all about gospel centered. So the other evangelicals saying this, and there was a genuine debate about it. And they held the line on it. I think they stayed, we believe, complementarianism. But in a way, it was funnily inconsistent because saying everything's just about focusing on the gospel. Um, And complementarianism, technically, you should therefore say you could be egalitarian or complementarian. It doesn't matter. Now, they wisely at that time at that time held the line on it, and they'd also hold the line on issues on homosexuality and things like that. They technically still hold that line now. They're just very, very cagey about how they'll engage on that, and they won't go out and battle it and combat it. And I think that's probably the other uh, the issue here. So it's this cowardice thing 
relating to the issues of our time, which are the gospel is being attacked in our time on issues of anthropology. What is a human? What is a male? What's a female? What can and can't we do? And why is that okay or not? So I, I often just, that, that's just what happens. And I've seen this over a decade of doing, uh, well over a decade of doing various forms of, of ministry in, in terms of academia. And then before that, even then, throughout the whole time, interspersed doing mission and evangelism in lots of contexts involving pastoral work. It's when you focus, it's when you talk about issues that challenge things like feminism, that you realize where the idols are. You, you can talk about all these other things and no one really minds, or that's like open-handed, open discussion. You know you've touched upon idolatry when you can't any anymore have a rational discussion about it. You've sort of awoken the demons and they come out. And I don't necessarily mean the people are themselves the demons, but I just feel like there are genuinely demonic we should see these things in terms of spiritual warfare you should read the bible and look at how the prophets challenge idolatry and the things that happen to them when they do i don't know why we'd assume that doesn't still happen today but what we tend to say is the idols are like being too conservative being a moralist caring too much about the family those are the idols i was like you guys are living in another planet i don't understand how you can possibly say that you can see with very clear eyes what's going on in the culture magically the same stuff is just coming seeping into the church at a slightly slower rate than it is in the culture and you still somehow think you're trying to make these exegetical arguments from the bible that oh actually when we really think about the gospel loving the marginalized helping people liberating women do you do do, do you want women to be oppressed therefore why wouldn't you be feminist like us why would you bother saying stuff about feminism that's not the main issue just preach the gospel just preach the gospel. Don't talk about these issues that are actually undermining the gospel. And I think that's where we've gone wrong. So the biggest problem is cowardice in relation to speaking about these issues because we've duped ourselves and duped each other into thinking the secondary issues are not worth fighting about. And that's really our cowardice of not wanting to fight at all. Mm-hmm. It was interesting what you said about how you've seen the, the church shifting left. And I think, you know, like, when you're swimming in the sea you just don't realize it do you which way the currents mm. are, mm. are pushing you until all of a sudden you 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 realize how far you've gone and i think mm. i think you're right the last few years with with well it's not just covid19 it's i think you're referencing it's the george floyd stuff it's yeah of course oh yeah yeah all these all these issues where these churches which up until then would say oh, we mustn't talk about abortion we don't because we don't want to get into social action you know mm. don't go away from the gospel mm. and so actually positioning themselves as we're too conservative we're too you know yeah. gospel protective to get into yeah. any social issue and yeah. almost uh, suggesting those who, who who want to talk about things like abortion are mm. you know they're going the way of of all liberals in some sense yeah. because it's all focusing mm. on on social action and so on yeah. but actually i think yeah. a lot of these churches and we're talking about the, the, the very most conservative of evangelical churches mm. really <laughs> showed their hand over the yeah, last few years did. because how many of them dropped everything to so-called save lives to oh, yeah. um yeah. you know to care about uh, people's health mm. and so on mm. uh, yeah. to condemn racism in the strongest possible terms and that's a direct mm-hmm, quote mm-hmm, you know they mm-hmm. it, it, all the nuance goes out the window yeah um yeah. when it's when it's yeah. actually um in in unison with the bbc mm. the guardian and um just the kind of the currents isn't it and so mm. those currents and i think you're right mm. it's, it, that lack of courage um means that we we just do go with the flow of of culture and, and mm. the great irony is that these churches that say we don't want to get political and so on 
are of course radically politicized aren't they they yeah, of course like by, by wanting to stay out of politics called <clears throat> the only yeah. way you can stay out of politics is by agreeing with the party line isn't it? exactly yeah it's it's a, it's a form of it's a secularization of the of the public witness of the church the notion that there's this place in the world that is secular which means that god is not doesn't have anything to do with it you think of tony you know the was it alistair campbell tony blair's spin mm. doctor when new labor came in in mid 90s we don't do god so politics doesn't do god at the same time they're saying we care about education 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 and that's mm, how interesting let's push everyone into higher education we don't do god and and, and we assume that those things aren't connected on some way. So you've got everyone going into this increasingly godless, secularized academy, um, being educated, really being indoctrinated, because they all come out with exactly the same social views on all of most of these issues. They like to think that they're all individual. They're all completely brainwashed. And they call the Christians or the conservatives, whatever, the brainwashed ones who aren't open liberal thinkers. And say, actually, we're actually being quite liberal and open-handed and saying, let's discuss these issues reasonably, rationally. And you actually can't because we've been co-opted. So that's why a lot of these pastors in gospel-centered churches are preaching race issues like it's a gospel issue. Now, of course, absolutely, we want to defy racism. Um, but I think it became like apologizing for being white, which was actually a racist view. So it's, mm -hmm. the irony is that the, the, the phrase anti-racism, without a hyphen, just that, that phrase anti-racism is actually quite racist, 100% well, no, racist. And I saw that in the academy and I used to think, what nonsense academic theologians talk. I'm so glad this, I was at a conference uh, far, six years ago, hearing a black theologian from America talk absolute trash about something called black malpractice, how we need whiteness to be attacked to a room of white, mostly white theologians. And they were like, mm, yes, yeah, amen. We need to we need to allow black malpractice to kind of mess up the system, undo the authority structures of, of the Bible and everything. And it was mm, very interesting wow. because of all the oppression. And I was like, gosh, academic theology is so nonsense. I'm, I'm, I'm a Trojan horse in it, really. I can't believe I'm glad this is a, there's this big barrier that doesn't really come into the church. And then suddenly, within a couple of years, we see the George Floyd thing. We would already start seeing it, obviously, with some of those events in Baltimore in the lead up to 2020. And then suddenly all these churches, like the, the week of the George Floyd murder, we had gospel centered churches apologizing for whiteness. And it was yeah. just like, that is insane. That isn't, you're not even gospel centered in your own definition. As you say, mm. you're politicized without knowing it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not, it's not about, we don't touch social issues. It's the culture is telling us which ones we're allowed to, and which ones we do. We do what we're, we're told. Yeah. Yeah. We do what mm. we're told. Um, and it's interesting because again, actually racism i'd be prepared to say racism in a sense was a gospel issue back in 1930s 40s germany you know yeah, actually absolutely whether you yeah. want to call that ethnicity or whatever but the, 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 as, as bonhoeffer said mm. um only he who cries out for the jews may sing gregorian chants that there was a moment yes. in history where yes hitler yes in his Aryan paragraph said you know unless you agree unless you sign here and say Jews cannot mm. hold office, as in ethnic Jews hold office in the Christian yeah. Church, um, then uh, you're in trouble. And and yeah. that's where Bonhoeffer saw it straight away. I think very very yeah. quickly. It's back in thirty, yeah. but even thirty three, he was calling out the cult yeah. of the Führer. But I think he yeah. he saw it very clearly, very quickly, that in his context that was a gospel issue because it was an issue yeah. of authority. It's yeah. whose word is supreme, mm. and. Mm. And he was absolutely right in saying this is a gospel issue. But he was up against mm. you know, similar things. People saying, yeah. look, let's not get caught up in that. Let's not burn any bridges. Mm. Let's keep preaching yeah. the gospel. Let's not lose our missional witness. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. So, and imagine telling Bon. I mean, imagine telling Bonhoeffer 
to just preach the gospel, you know, like, and, and we can get, we can get to do it. I know there's some guys in, with swashlickers at the back of the room making notes to ensure that we're not like going against the party, but like preach the gospel. They're allowing us to do that. You're anti-gospel. That's kind of genuinely, that's the kind of stuff that the, um, the, uh, the kind of German churches were doing before the confessing church kind of broke away and, and tried to do, and they had to, they had to go underground. They had to defy authorities you had the romans 13 stuff that we had during covid as well come up like oh you shouldn't go against the authorities because luther told us there's two kingdoms leave the government to do what they want mm. uh what they see fit because god's put them there so who are you to challenge it and we just get on with building the church yeah i know the nazis are in the church but whatever let's um let's work with these guys isn't there some great stuff happening for the nation anyway so that kind of other forms of nationalism come in um so mm. it's really interesting how these things do play out very differently. And we would definitely couldn't apply the gospel-centered logic in how we apply it now. We, if you'd applied it then, you'd be on the bad guy's side for sure. And I think that's something people haven't been willing willing to see and willing to, um, yeah, willing to realize because that's like, it, it cuts against what they what they really want to to see happen and what they've inherited and haven't really ever questioned. And so I think the, the, the example of the of 1930s Germany is a really good one for racism. Of course, you'd probably have a similar we might have a similar thing with segregation in, in the 60s mm. in the US um, in terms of, you know, gospel issues. But and then the but the irony being now that um, it is a gospel issue to challenge, ironically, the Black Lives Matter thing, because it's a gospel issue because of the way that they talk about reparations and guilt, white guilt and inherited guilt and things yeah. like this is directly contrary to the gospel. And um, because you can't, there are some people today, and, and it's not just race and other issues as well, uh, in relation to gender and things, there are things that people do that they almost can't be forgiven for. It's really ironic, you know, amazing. And and you talk about the Roman Catholic debates that we don't want to be fighting fake debates from the 16th century and pretending we're like Luther, here I stand. Mm. Um, but there's indulgence logic today. Like the Church of England last year, Justin Welby set aside a hundred million pounds to give to kind of, you know, the anti-racist causes because because they found out, and it was re related to the fact that they found out that the Church of England had profited or been in business with some slave trader 200 odd years ago. So they're like, okay, how do we pay for this? We better do something publicly. So here's a hundred million out of, out of our billions. And, I, and there's people even there going, oh, that doesn't even make a difference. It's like, well, a hundred million would make a pretty good difference to lots of churches and organizations, but you're just literally just tossing that away as an indulgence to effectively to pay for your sin. So are you Protestants or not? Are we going we're back to indulgences now? Is that okay? Because it's on race issues. It's interesting as well, just one more thing on the 1930s issue. You know, there's um, Karl Barth, who, you know, is a bit of a mixed blessing. He, he can, some would say he's entirely not a blessing. He's a, a major theologian of the 20th century, Swiss, but German speaking, kicked out of Germany during the Nazis. He, he was with Bonhoeffer. They were partner, partners in crime. If you were a Nazi, they'd call them criminals, as it were, because they defied the Nazis. And Bart had a great emphasis on the gospel. He went wrong in loads of other ways, but he, in this time, he was, really, he was pretty heroic. And, and he, for that time, he had this strange practice where he covered, he had loaded all Luther's works on his shelf. And he covered Luther's works with a, a kind of veil um, in his bookshelf because he realized at this time with the Nazis in power, he massively appreciated Luther. He realized, I can't read Luther at this time, I, or I can't listen to him. It wasn't that he actually wasn't reading, he was just saying, we must silence Luther for now because Luther's got this tract on, you know, against the Jews, which the Nazis are using to their advantage to justify Kristallnacht. Um, and there's this way in which the, the two kingdoms um, theology that Luther 
emphasize which work which was necessary in his time is completely different now and is being abused again by the nazis and by those who support them so right now we're just not going to listen to luther because his voice is no longer helpful and we can he can say that as someone who deeply appreciated luther and i appreciate luther hugely i think we need luther today in a, in a very significant way i just think there's certain so there's certain times when you need to amplify emphases and, and minimize them that's something I've even written on, you know, my own PhD was on in terms of preaching. There are dialectical situations, intention, there are different emphases in scripture, which without ever um, violating scripture as a whole, you, you might want to accentuate certain certain elements. And, and you need to be just wise and discerning and open to the spirit and ultimately founding everything on the word of God in doing so. So you're not just picking and choosing. Oh, I think we'll just go do, do, down this route for now. It does take wisdom and discernment with scripture. Uh, calls us to and we need to be ready to say what whatever needs to be said when it needs to be said absolutely and we and we see that within scripture itself don't we we see that mm. you can see not contradictory but you can see balancing phrases mm. within one verse you know continue mm. to work out mm. your salvation with trembling mm. and fear because it is god who works in you you know yeah. to win and to act according yeah. to his purpose and yeah i think sometimes for pastoral reasons you'll need to emphasize one and a half of that verse more than the other yeah. and i think that's that's good pastoring it's good preaching and mm. again mm. i think that the issue in the church today in the uk is not generally that people are out there preaching a gospel of works mm. um but i think in a sense you could say we've got the opposite problem we've got the problem mm. of um let us sin that that grace may abound and actually mm. i think the problem goes even deeper than that because i think when you, when you talked about courage being perhaps the main challenge of the day i think that's right because it's almost become a a, a laughing matter a sort of a, a permissible sin people talk about courage as if mm. it's an optional extra it's sort of people yeah. sort of say well i haven't got your courage yeah so i'm not going to do that it's like well is it obedience or is it not i mean yeah i don't think yeah. we really have that right to yeah to talk about courage as if it's a personality trait or hmm. um like your favorite color um <laughs> yeah. actually it's a morally yeah. significant yeah non-nego you know a lot in mm. that list in revelation um is it 19 21 8 20 revelation 21 yeah so uh, jesus uh, throwing people the, into the lake of fire right. kind of thing yeah right yeah so so mm. the cowards are among those aren't they so mm. yeah it's actually yeah. a really big deal but we've yeah. we've sort of rebranded it as an optional extra or, or like a gifting mm. almost mm. um mm. and if that's not your gift then fine and so i was actually mm. i was speaking with a with a pastor a very experienced pastor recently mm. who was referring to other pastors that he helps and looks after and so on right and he kind of said well if these men um if these men find the courage to speak on this dot 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 mm. and i'm thinking how, how has that become an optional thing you know what yeah. happened to preaching the whole counsel of god whether yeah. it's comfortable or not yeah. and yeah so i think we've we've on the one hand we've rebranded what we're meant to do as an optional extra and then on the other mm. hand we we preach so hard against a so-called gospel of works anyway that mm. there's there's mm. very little emphasis on applied uh, yeah. gospel in the first place mm. so we've kind of attacked yeah. it on both sides to make sure that no one feels <laughs> yeah. under any pressure at all to to, to do much mm. in mm. response to mm. this mm. to this gospel and so i think there mm. is that um antinomianism that hyper grace whatever you want to call it that is mm. Mm. is 
the problem of today which we need to use god's word to come against and i'm really mindful of the danger that we can also pendulum swing too much and yeah, one of the great sure. challenges of challenging you know antinomianism is how do you do it without sounding like a legalist and, mm, and mm. all that kind of stuff but i think these are the mm. these are the challenges and we mm. can't duck them mm. this is the, no. these are the days in which we live we've got no. to face up no. absolutely things yeah um but let me let me just return if i may to um something you referenced earlier the the examples mm. of of missionaries and so on who yeah who sought to respond in the light of the gospel to socialism well, actually before that tell yeah. us what do you think then what is the place of let's call it justice let's call it responding to the ethical issue of the day <clears throat> whatever yeah. you want to call it what is the place of that in missions in the mission of the in church mission. how does it relate yeah. to, to 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 that mission and I think it it just again depends on on how you how you're reading Matthew twenty eight is significant. Like, what do you think it means to to decide either make disciples of many nations, as some translations, or some will put it to disciple the nations. And I think that logic connects more with some of the Old Testament stuff about Israel as a light to the nations. God cares about mm-hmm. nations and cultures, and He wants to bring every tribe and tongue together. And you mentioned Revelation. Uh, where the cowards and the sexually immoral and many others are thrown into the lake of fire, which winsome evangelicals don't like to talk about. Um, but again, it's entirely in line with the judgment and justice that, that we see throughout the Gospels. Jesus is our biggest problem, really, if we're worried about being you know, overly caustic sounding or judgy sounding or whatever. Jesus is incre- incredibly judgmental. Uh, sheep and goats, if you build your house on the rock, you will survive the storm. If you build your house on the sand... It's going to be swept away. Like that's judge. That's the judgment of God. The Tower of Siloam falls in, in Luke thirteen. Jesus references, and they say, "Do these people sin more than anyone else?" And he says, "Like forget them. You need to repent, or you will perish as well." Mm. So, so we really see this sense of ju- ju- God's justice against sin is significant, and it's over everyone, all of humanity, made in His image, and also fallen by sin and need to be redeemed by Him. Um, from that and so it's not just a case of i evangelize someone give them the three-point gospel get them into the church so they can learn how to evangelize people to give them the three-point gospel get them into the Mm -hmm. church it makes human life the world is just becomes a playground for evangelism with the perpetual reason just a cycle of just doing more evangelism getting them into the church keeping them christians that's what pastoring's for so that they can go in out there and do more and it's not really the full orb gospel it's not the sense of what you see there so it's we're called if we're called to be salt and light we're we're supposed to be yes the light there's a light element where we can be like fairy lights in the darkness seeming nice so a lot of people like the idea of being light because it's a nice thing to have light in the darkness but it's also an exposing thing so paul talks in ephesians 5 about exposing sin not taking part in the works of darkness of those around you but exposing them um, for it's shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. So there's an element of that's the people of God speaking about the works of darkness beyond them. And we have a duty to expose that. That's what it means to be a light to the world. It isn't just being nice fairy lights. I mean, there isn't a, hopefully a sense in which the church is attractive as a light in the darkness, as a city on a hill. That's supposed to be part of it. And there's also a sense in which it's like a, um, yeah, a light being shone 
upon a problem. Like when you go to the dentist and they have that light over you and you realize, oh my gosh, my teeth are much worse than I realized. In my case, that was certainly the case for many years. And this, there's this rottenness that needs to be drilled out. And that, that's a really important thing. That's part of what it means to be light and to be salt, to be preservative as well as being tasty. So we sort of like, go, oh, I like being salt because that's like seasoning and the lights being like, you know, gentle lights. But actually both of those can have a more challenging emphasis as well. So justice has to be part of the the what it means to to be to be giving this gospel of the kingdom the kingdom of god is something that jesus speaks about loads and in many ways the gospels ironically are the thing that often challenge should challenge the evangelical narrow gospel the most so if you want to think about is is the evangelical gospel as we've inherited it in the, in the 20th century could it be challenged? Yeah, it could be challenged by the Gospels because Jesus himself is, what's he wasting his time for telling all of these parables of the kingdom? Just tell us the three-point Gospel and then die and then get resurrected. That's all we need to know. Stop wasting your time with all this teaching. Why did he need to spend three years teaching? It's a complete waste of time. You just need the three-point Gospel and then just tell people to start the church, do some pastoring, and that's kind of, you know, off we go. So most evangelical churches have not actually been reading the Bible. Um, in its fullness, even the New Testament, let alone the Old Testament. Like, so there's there's things to recover there. So I'm going off on a big track. You just asked me one small question, and I uh, rambled on like a theologian does. So justice is part of um, being salt, being light. Um, yeah. And I would like to uh, add to that um, or clarify, uh, at least in my mind, I see a quite a strong distinction between what what we might call charity and what we might call justice. I think it's very easy yeah. and no one objects, yeah. not even the kind of gospel only guys. No one mm. objects to a soup kitchen, no one no. objects to food banks, food no one banks objects to and... Yeah. You know, help, helping people mm. in ways that will yeah. never encounter any opposition or misunderstanding yeah. or whatever. So I think yeah. there's already agreement about charity, whether people yeah. say they're gospel centered or not. So we don't really yeah. need to worry about that. What we are mm. talking about is the ways in which we go against the grain um, where that light in the eyes is a bit startling and maybe uncomfortable because mm. we're used to the darkness um, mm. and where people will will accuse you of being the bad guy you know yeah of course as you know in some of the examples we've spoken about mm. Bonhoeffer not very patriotic mm. doesn't care about the German people troublemaker mm. yeah. so yeah. on um, and, and likewise back in the abolition of the slave trade uh these guys were accused of being all sorts you know uh, in, yeah. and in particular given what was going on um over the english channel yeah these are yeah. revolutionaries they're sort yeah of, yeah they they hate the they hate the crown and so on the social so, order the chaos they're bringing yeah 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 so i think i think we're talking specifically about when we talk about justice we're not talking about justice on a, on issues where everyone's already in agreement mm. we're talking about mm. where it's against the flow of culture perhaps we could say in any generation there is one great injustice maybe a few but often there's one great injustice that's actually accepted and defended mm. and promoted so so today mm. for example no one's out there saying slavery is a good thing no one's yeah. saying sex trafficking is good everyone agrees that that poverty is 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 bad um yeah but when it comes to like abortion well hang on we're on the wrong side of <laughs> history here because we're mm. told abortion is a human right it's a mark of yeah. progression um it's yeah. empowering women it's healthcare. 
um, mm -hmm. and we don't want to go back to the dark ages when women mm. couldn't control their own bodies. So, mm. so when we're talking about issues like that, mm. can you help us, um, Aaron, with any examples, um, perhaps in the last few hundred years, but maybe early church mm -hmm. history, but mm. where where missionaries, people that no one's going to accuse of being a liberal, no one's going to mm. accuse of of losing sight of the gospel you know people who really care about souls and eternity yeah and the church yeah. and the glory of christ and his word can you give us a few examples of where you've seen yeah. that lived out well yeah yeah so certainly i think probably it's probably more helpful to use some of the missionary examples in the in the 19th century i mean it's interesting you know you know just as a precursor to that you you referenced sort of there briefly there the, the french revolution and the sense of like you know, liberty, equality, fraternity of, of their sort of modus operandi there. And how, in a way, the French Revolution does also ultimately influence the Russian Revolution and it, it, indirectly. But Marxism is what many liberals mean by justice today. So hmm. justice is like this balancing. We kind of think of it as this balancing. And so you can see how that easily maps onto an egalitarian logic. Justice between the sexes let's make men and women equatable um, and, and, and ignore the fact that there might be hierarchies in history because of some creational difference that God actually intended, even if they by sin were corrupted and men decided to abuse women in their hierarchical distinction. But there are nonetheless hierarchies in, in society for a reason. What the French Revolution did is, is hierarchy is the problem, order is the problem. And let's make it just by like, tearing down the authorities and all they do is just erect their own authorities who again abuse power and become tyrants exactly what happened with napoleon etc and you have the same with the russian revolution a ludicrous stalin etc and then people keep saying when you say this is just marxism doesn't work the french revolution has been corrosive and destroyed the western world um they just go well it hasn't been properly applied has it communism's never been properly applied it's like, okay let's let's how long do we have to wait for this complete demonic heresy to to be applied properly before you're going to be happy um, so it's part of this issue of justice. They don't mean justice biblically, because if they did mean justice biblically, we'd be talking Revelation 21.8 as well, which they don't want that kind of justice. They don't want the kind of way that God, the Bible speaks of justice. Um, they want it on their own terms, which is actually in a very directly godless way, anti-authority in relation to God, not just in relation to tyrants that are sinners. Um, um, so anyway, so anyway, um, in terms of people who've gone to challenge those things. Wilberforce in our country would be a great example, obviously, fighting for, for you know, years and years to get these bills through Parliament, battling in a very niche way in many ways to other missionaries. But Wilberforce is absolutely a missionary to our culture. And of course, you, you, I'm sure you've mentioned it many times in your podcast, what a great example to how we should think of the abolition of abortion today and how I believe we should be using the language of abolition uh, of abortion. Um, and... You know, I think of things like people like William Carey, who is really the father of the modern missionary movement. I've written an article that you've read on on that on my blog. Um, I, I found it fascinating, especially not only because William Carey, the reason he's called the found the kind of father of the modern missionary movement is because he's from a reformed background, reformed Baptist, where they so believed in the logic of Calvinism. Um, I'm, I'm a Calvinist, not because of Calvin. Like you, you know, you should just be, read the Bible and see that God is sovereign, and that should enough from there the logic follows when you see the new testament but he was in a calvinistic tradition which had taken that as a, as a means to not do evangelism and not mm -hmm. to do you know to they almost it was almost seen as though you ought not to do that god can do it all on his own so why would he need you young man you know let me just shake you on the head and, and pat you on the back and send you on your way 
Um, as long as you don't go abroad, actually, don't I don't want to send you anywhere in an official sense, just send you back home. Um, Carey goes, no, I really believe a calling, strong calling to bring the gospel to these other cultures. So he had to be courageous and defy the authorities of the church at his time, like many have had to do, like Luther had to do in his time, like Bonhoeffer had to do in his time. Um, so Carey goes to uh, to India and just the most phenomenal, just puts everyone to shame, really. I think, I mean, there's many missionaries that put us to shame, but like the, he, he learns several languages. He just, he works so hard to ingratiate himself in the culture. He doesn't come in blasting in with his club and go, I know the, all the answers to everything. I'm just going to blast in and, um, you know, steamroll your your culture. He cares a lot about cultural engagement and and does a good job in, in the in the ways in which he, he does this, um, working with the, the authorities in India. And at the same time, he challenges the culture when it's going against, directly against um, what he sees as as God's uh, God's natural law and or his his revealed word in the sense that you just can't you can't burn widows. I'm not I'm like sorry not sorry. This is not okay. Sati is not okay. And and he, you imagine today we'd look with a post colonial lens. Are we sort of embarrassed by all these missionaries who went and took the West? You're judging these people in other countries. Like, well, yes, that's okay. You, we will judge. I'd like I'd like people from Nigeria to judge our ridiculous nonsense on LGBT. I I welcome missionaries from Africa who are so much clearer than us to come and say, "You guys are complete idiots in many respects." Sorry, not sorry on this because you don't you don't understand what what you're doing, and it's actually corroding your society, corroding the church in many ways. He didn't know William Carey probably didn't say I don't know complete idiots, but he did very clearly point out that this was nonsense. Um, and it needed to be challenged. And he's not afraid to do that. He wasn't afraid to be called some kind of white, you know, imposer of um, some other culture upon them. He said, this is not good. This is I, I, to be salt and light, to preach the gospel. I need you to understand this is wrong. And even more particularly in relation to abortion, there was a particular practice of of um, the first baby. Um, if someone if, if someone has a, a, a child, the mothers would take them to the to the river and throw their baby into the river um, to placate the river goddess. And I, I remember reading this book with my son. I think I mentioned this in my article, and just and we're reading it, and it's like, I and I'm, I think this was an exact quote from Carey. Um, you know, why should why should babies be thrown into the river year by year? Was Carey's question. And you read it, and you're like, what kind of a situation do you have to be in to have to say you shouldn't throw babies into the river? I mean, what a what a complete ridiculous situation. And yet today, that's precisely how we should think about abortion. We just don't see them as babies. We see them as feti or whatever. So we uh, it's a much more insidious bureaucratic logic, which makes us change the language that we use so that we don't have to identify as as ludicrous as William Carey going up to the, this practice and going, you're chucking your babies into the river to placate this fake river goddess. This is completely stupid and awful and evil. I have to call it out. I want to be the dentist light shining that. And it, and it, his his proclamation... And backing that up with everything else in his actions actually brought a change. And he saved, who, who knows how many babies William Carey saved, but he wasn't afraid to say that and challenge the culture. You have to do that. And he so, and I say that, I mentioned all that stuff earlier to say he's not someone who just blasted in and didn't care about the people he's speaking to. So there is a sense in which we contextualize in our culture to be salt and light, but there's also a sense in which we challenge that as well. I mean, there's many other examples you could give. You think of Gladys Aylward with the... Um, foot binding okay she she wasn't the first one to call it out but like they used to bind women's feet in order to you know enable them to be more feminine in some way and so there's a weird way in which there's a christian liberationist thing that isn't quite the same as western feminism 
um, which had the different, but there's some of those seem to overlap at times and they're saying, this is just wrong and we're going to challenge it. But someone could easily say, this is our cultural practice. This is our cultural heritage. And we want to abuse women in this way. You know, Amy Carmichael, similarly with, with temple prostitution um, and challenging that. There's all these wonderful missionaries um, who come and do this. And they are the heroes that we look to as great examples of mission. So why aren't we doing that today in our own context, let alone in other contexts? Because we're scared of being called a racist, a misogynist. We're scared of being called homophobic. We're scared of being called colonialist if we Im impose something on other people or distracting from the gospel, um, which again, so I just really think it's, I, I, I can't really be said enough how corrosive that is to the gospel. The irony is just abound that in so focusing on the capital G gospel, you actually undermine the gospel. It's possible to do that. Even if, the, that, that, as we said earlier, some of those emphases developed for good reasons to challenge moralism, we've actually, they've become bad and they've, they've cut us off from our own evangelical heritage, let alone the wider history of the church. Mm. It's interesting, as you're listing these examples, I'm trying to think of any great well-known missionary who, who didn't take up some or the justice mm. cause of the day mm. i mean you mm. just think through these yeah. examples and yeah yeah and then you have to ask the question okay so who who grasped the gospel more accurately me or them you know who's yeah. who's in the wrong here did what mm. you know was was william carey off on one was he was he was that mission drift or maybe mm. did he just know god really very very mm. well and mm. and was he actually sold out for jesus mm. um and then you, yeah, you think, as you said, Amy Carmichael, Gladys Hale, the people who clearly had a concern for souls. Mm. And yet I, mm. we complicate it so much. But I think really, um, if, you, if you're reading your scriptures and you're praying and your eyes are open and mm. your heart is soft, how can you not, how can mm. you not respond yeah. to these horrific yeah. injustices? Who, who yeah. can, I mean... Forget even if you're born again for a second. Who with a functioning mm. conscience can stand by a river and see babies chucked in and think, do you know mm. what? It's not really specifically what I'm here for. Mm. I'm not going to get mm. involved. Mm. Or burning widows or, or mm. putting twins to death because apparently to yeah. be a twin is a curse. And yeah, yeah. I just yeah. think we what we must have done so much or something's been done to us. So mm. um, it's been so insidious. It's been so... Mm thorough that mm. born again christians in the uk today can remain as it seems entirely unmoved by mm. the genocide of babies i mean mm. what's gone on there that we've become mm. so callous that we have mm. have so we've and we've even worked out theologies to justify it to kind of mm. excuse our our inaction um, but if we just bring it back to basics we read our scripture we see they're made in the image mm. of god we see that we're called to be a voice of the voiceless. Actually, none mm. of this is rocket science. Mm. It's no. just that we're excusing ourselves from the light. We are. And just to jump in on that, the, the, the going back to the cowardice thing, it can also be, I, I can, there's an understandable reason for why people might be reticent at first, partly because they've received all of this uh, narrowing of the gospel, which, which I think needs to be just undone, not to broaden the gospel, just to say that to actually just be accurate to what the Bible actually mm. calls you to do in, in proclaiming and living out the gospel. Um, but yeah, it's the it's the sense in which we um, on the abortion front, you can you can think, well, if I start talking about abortion, 
does that mean I have to know loads of stuff about economics and these other issues and poverty? And mm. what I get online mostly from from the kind of haters, as it were, the people that often from the Christian side, I mean, that shouldn't really happen. You shouldn't really have haters, but the, your most often your most caustic critics will be other Christians. And it'll be things like, you're supposed to be caring about the poor. Like you said earlier, those are issues we're not arguing with. No one's debating whether or not we should help the poor. Of course, we're not. We're, we're doing that to different extents in different ways. Uh, but they say, you should be focusing on the poverty. Jesus wants you to focus on the poor. So at least you, you should be focusing all your area, all your energies on that, and not, not fighting these pointless culture war issues against whether it's LGBT or issues like abortion. Mm-hmm. And so it makes people think, oh my gosh, do I have to be an expert on all of these things? Do I have to be an expert on abortion procedure in order to argue it? Because there's these very clever arguments that sound like they're actually quite reasonable. And yeah, I don't want to control women's bodies. And they keep telling me that I'll be, I'm a misogynist who hates women if I speak out against this. Um, I must, maybe I'll just stay out of it. It's easy to stay out of it and preach the gospel. Um, so, so we just don't do it. And I realized that a number of years ago, and I've always had the really clear conviction on abortion, even I think before I was even a Christian, I was, um, I remember being in RE class, writing an essay in like year nine or something. And it was like, I had a, a really strong evangelical teacher. And actually, I don't know if he's still alive now, but he was like, you'd probably call him a fundamentalist. And so I don't know how we got away with it, but in our school, he properly just like gave us the clear arguments. So he wasn't like indoctrinating, but he just laid out, this is what the Bible says. Here's what the Christian view is. Here's what, here's what happens in abortion. Here's how they take the forceps and crush the baby's skull. And it's all of those things, but other teachers might not do that. So I was actually really blessed by this non-gospel preaching teacher, as it were, giving us the arguments um, and just saying, this is what, what do you think about it? Write an essay as to whether these should be for or against abortion. And when you consider the arguments as any reasonable person should, they should come out on this, I would say, on pro-life. And people say, oh, it's more complex than that. Well, you, you, you've been taught to say it's more complex. It was complex to challenge slavery. Now you are totally judgmental on anyone who didn't challenge slavery. But now it's nuanced and complex on abortion. And I firmly believe in future generations, they will judge us and they will judge anyone um, who hasn't spoken out against this. So... We, we'd need to, not just for the sake of saving your reputation, that's not the best motivation in the future uh, years for posterity, but really just to say, are, are you actually on the side of the kingdom right now? Or are you sort of working, at least enabling the work of the enemy? Because this is, it, you cannot, as you say, you cannot look at this and not feel moved. Um, and, and many, I believe, are, many evangelicals are moved, but I think they feel like they have to be an expert to do it. And I just don't think you have to. And I don't think you have to have all your political ducks in a row. You don't have to agree with everything everyone else says. You could at least say abortion is evil, heinous, and I want to speak it out. At least say that. Work out the other complications later. Maybe that's the only issue you speak about. And someone will say, well, why don't you talk about this? Deal with that later. If you think this is a big conviction, just preach your conviction and live it out. And then, and then maybe you might develop and think about other socio-political issues. Maybe you won't, but at least you're going to be true to that conviction and not allow this evil to continue happening. Allow babies to be chucked into the river year after year. Mm. And I think sometimes we we take something that is difficult in terms of maybe the cost, uh, the discomfort, um, and we turn that into complication. We say it's grey, but mm. actually it's just that it's hard. Uh, it's mm. just there's a cost and yeah. And actually, it's not a complicated issue. It's, mm. yes, there are financial, whatever. There, there are all these different things that connect with it, as, mm. as you said, as with the slave trade. But it's a really mm. simple thing that racism is just wrong and slavery and slave trade are wrong. Mm. And, um, and, and killing a baby is wrong. And mm. it actually is that simple. It's yeah. just that sometimes we're, we're waiting for the day when we can say it in some utopian sort of 
mm. situation mm. where we word it perfectly and no one's offended yeah. and everyone agrees. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Out yeah. Yes. Um, but actually, I think yeah. the Lord Jesus is gracious in warning us ahead of time. Mm. You know, no student is above his master mm. if, uh, or yeah. his teacher. If, if they hated yeah. me, they'll hate you. So yeah. If we just kind of accept that in advance, it will actually does become mm. very simple. Yeah. Uh, and of course, yeah. uh, not only posterity, but even in our day, you know, you think of the likes of, of Gladys Aylward. She clearly mm. enjoyed the, uh, over time, the, the incredible respect and acceptance mm. of the people around her, even mm. though she was fighting against their culture in some regards. Uh, many in, ma- in many regards, you could say, but there's integrity in that, and mm. people respect mm. if, if you have the courage, conviction, and mm. they they know they know what you're about. So actually, sometimes mm. that trying to protect mm. our own reputation, mm. even within its own mm. flawed mm. framework, is self-defeating mm. because absolutely, really, does that yeah. inspire respect? Someone who's mm. only ever mimicking mm. the culture around. Absolutely. Look, Aaron, yeah. I've, I've taken enough of your time. It's been really good to, to speak. Thank you for helping us think through some of those things. I wonder if, um, unless there's anything else burning you want to share, I wonder if you would be so kind as to um, close with us in, in prayer. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Happy to pray. Yeah. Thank you. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for what you've revealed to us. Thank you for the way in which it helps us to make sense of the world around us, even in our own sinful conditions and the ways we may turn away from you and your word and pursue our own heart's desires. Lord, we pray you would change our hearts, Lord. We pray for those who call on your name, who believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that you are Lord. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would soften hearts um, to see what you see, Lord, to see the world as you see it, Lord. Help us to be rooted evermore in your word all the way down so that we don't just cut off the parts that are inconvenient uh, to us uh, at any given time. Lord, help us to be really open to what you are saying. And Lord, help us to take action. Help us not to be those who hear your word and refuse to do it. Like the man in James who looks at his face in the mirror and goes away and immediately forgets what he was like. Lord, help us to be those who hear and do, who are broken, whose hearts are broken for what breaks your heart, Lord, and and are able to go in the confidence and courage that you give us, you equip us with in the power of your word and spirit to be salt and light in the world, whatever that means. So I pray for those listening to this uh, right now, that they would be empowered by you, that you would would actually speak to them in their heart, Lord. You would would just give them a, a real sense of calling to what they can do. Like those great examples we've been discussing today, that they would step out and speak Uh, speak afresh with bold courage in your name, regardless of the consequences, and be ready to take the hits that come their way, not in a foolish way, but in a way that is truly wise, because it's following you. So I pray for that. I pray for the ministry of Brefos and for other um, pro-life or abolitionist organizations, Lord. We pray that you would strengthen their hand and that you would embolden them and and bring more uh, to realization of how important this issue is. Let it be an expression of the fullness of your gospel, of your kingdom in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.